Beyonce's Lemonade album, for example, had 140 songwriters. How do you track that when you've got 500 different digital consumption services globally and there's two trillion skins a year? There's a lot of people who actually think, oh, just take the money, we'll figure it out later. That's actually not true. So the fundamental thing we're doing is we're building a technology architecture to allow the entire music industry to be. entrepreneur you're a little bit different than some of the other people we talked to so would you mind telling us what you do sure maybe a brief background as well i have a previous career if you will in finance as a trader and manager of trading desks i did that for uh, 25 years or so and basically for the last nine or ten years I switched gears pretty completely and have played uh, entrepreneur in the digital music space most of my work centers around a company i form called digital daruma i do a number of things all under the uh, broad mission of trying to make the world of digital music friendlier for the creator community. It's a great time to be a creator. It's a great time, I think, as a consumer of media, lots of choices, instantaneous, etc. Very, very tough to make a living off of it. I decided uh, for career number two to focus on that, I call it the riddle, which is how do you make the digital jungle friendly for the creator community? So with that in mind, I actually do some investing in startups. In the music technology space, I've invested in six companies. I currently have six companies in my portfolio, and I've probably looked at over 500 startups for potential investment in the last uh, roughly decade. I also do direct investing in artists and developing artists. So think of it as startup investing, except you invest in, in the creator or the creators directly. And I've also co-founded two companies. One is a multimedia studio here in New York City called uh, Five to One Media. And the other is a project that I've been working on, our company I co-founded, which would love to talk more about. It's called Dot Blockchain Music, which is focused on modernizing rights management for the music business. I also advise a number of university programs related to music and technology, as well as I'm on the board of a couple of music-related foundations. So I've kind of surrounded myself with music stuff. And did you go to college? Yes, I did. A long time ago. <laughs> graduated in 1986 and studied psychology and math. Which is in Princeton? Yep. I went to a small school in uh, New Jersey called uh, Princeton University. I was actually going to be a high school math teacher and somehow ended up on Wall Street instead. So that's, that's fine. <laughs> the guy I just talked to wanted to be a high school history teacher. Oh, yeah. Hey, ended up not doing that as well. So oh, kind of... wow. Well, I tried. I actually... <laughs> You're saying he didn't try? <laughs> well, I'm not saying he didn't try, but I actually tried to get a job as a high school math teacher after I graduated from university. And believe it or not, I couldn't get hired. And that's how I ended up on Wall Street. So I think people still need math teachers. So I guess I can always go do that at some point. Let's just talk quickly. What firm were you at when you're on Wall Street? And were you making a lot of money there? Well, it was a great experience. You know, I spent almost 25 years there, like I said. I worked for two firms. Majority of the time I spent at a company everyone's heard of called Lehman Brothers. I actually worked my way up to be one of the more senior managers at that company. The last job I had was actually managing all of the fixed income asset management businesses. And I was one of the five senior managers of the asset management team. And just as a interesting footnote, our division actually didn't go bankrupt. <laughs> so was it your fault? Exactly. Yeah, there's some other people that maybe caused the problem to be worse. But in a weird kind of way, it was a very, very difficult time for those of us on the asset management side because we still had to come to work every day in a very, very difficult market, managing other people's money and having your parent, in essence, or your owner be bankrupt. 
is a tough sell if you're a money manager. We ended up buying ourselves out. And oddly enough, in the course of the buyout, uh, I decided to retire once we knew that we were doing that. And that's how I ended up in the music space. And before we jump into that even further, can you tell us what like the work-life balance is when you're at Lehman or one of those finance firms? Because I hear stories that's difficult to move up that you're working, you know, 80 hours a week. Just tell us a little bit about that experience before we jump into your early retirement. Yeah, it's a rather all-encompassing career, I would say. I'm sure many, many stories around different perspectives on that. I work as a trader and manager of trading desks. The trading business tends to have a little bit more of a reasonable schedule because you tend to trade when the markets are open, right? So it is a little bit more, it's not nine to five, it's more like 6.30 in the morning till six o'clock at night. And it is a global business these days. So there's a lot of stuff happening overseas. So, you know, it's not like this sort of timestamp nine to five, if you will. But I think trading and sales on that side of the business, it's a little bit more of a normalized lifestyle. You do get the weekends to go hang, for example, for the most part. If you're in investment banking, which is a very, very different kind of business, I think you can, if you're super busy on deals or whatever, be much more, if you will, on call and sort of dependent on clients that actually can drive those long hours that, that you were describing. You're a failed math teacher and then early retired from Lehman Brothers. And then you got into music business? Yep. <laughs> Just trying try to summarize quickly. <laughs> Go figure. So my music interest uh, stems from um, my long sort of hobbyist interest in music. I grew up playing the saxophone. I actually played tenor sax in the jazz ensemble in college. I actually ran the jazz ensemble for a couple of years. I was also a radio disc jockey in high school and in college. My brother is a professional musician. So I don't know where it happened because there's no real music lineage in our family, but we must have music in our DNA. You know, when I had a chance to actually rethink what I wanted to do next, I got very, very interested, like I said earlier, in this riddle. Digital is transforming the way we consume media, how we create media, and playing a small part in figuring out how to make that friendlier for the creative community seemed like a really, really interesting problem to get a front row seat in. That's what I decided to do. Was it just a light bulb moment right when you left Lehman? That's exactly what you started doing? Or were you just, hey, I want to get in the music business and kind of poke around, try to figure out how you can make money doing it? Yeah, great question. I actually spent about six months trying to figure out whether what I wanted to do next. I think I had three doors I could choose. I could go back into finance. I certainly had a number of opportunities come my way to uh, continue to work in finance including some pretty cool jobs. I also thought about teaching because of my failed teaching uh, attempt earlier. I thought about starting a chartered school in the New York City area and then worked on that for a little while. And the third door was this music thing. I basically turned down a great finance job. And that's when I knew that I didn't want to do finance for the rest of my life from a career perspective. Then the teaching thing or the charter school thing seemed very, very long-term and very bureaucratic which was something that I actually experienced at Lehman as we actually grew bigger and bigger. And as I became more of a manager, I felt personally not ready for that. Being a little bit more entrepreneurial and do stuff on your own and try new things and experiment seemed fun. And so marrying my business skills with my interest in music seemed like the best alternative at the time. And I'm very, very happy I chose this store. So were you just like working from home on this music thing or what was the deal? Because I think we talked about it for a second. You're out of New York. Mm -hmm. Have you always been there? I guess Lehman and everything is there, but did you grow up there? I'm originally from Tokyo, Japan. I grew up through high school. I was in Tokyo and then I came to college in the States. After that, I got a job in New York on Wall Street. I did spend two years in Japan for Lehman. 
in the early 90s. But other than that, I've always been in New York City. And, you know, for me, as a, if you will, a small-time explorer of uh, an independent small-time explorer of the music space, you know, I can pretty much work from anywhere. But New York is my home. I've lived in the same neighborhood for almost 30 years and love the city. So it turns out the music industry, one of its hubs is New York. So it kind of worked out pretty well. You're retired. Did you have kids? Uh, married at all? I'm married. No kids. Were you just at home with the wife during those six months while you're trying to figure out this music thing? Were you working from there? Like, Tell us a little bit more of how you started to sure. envision your company. Sure. My wife works, so she was uh, in and out. So I had the apartment to myself. I was the stay-at-home dad with no kids. You are my brother from, that's what I say all the time. Yeah, I work yeah. From. <laughs> yeah it's, it was all right. But no, I started the company on my own. I thought about how to sort of educate myself in the music business, and in particular, the new stuff. As some of my friends call it, I decided to get a very expensive PhD in the music business. I've done investing for all of my life, including actually investing in startups in my prior roles in finance. So I thought that would be a good way for me to marry some of my expertise, but also get a lens, if you will, into what new companies, what their journey is like as this transformation is happening before us on the digital music front. I decided that I will make small investments independently in these companies. And that's what my company was set off to go into. So basically trying to find companies, obviously, that are have a future and have some upside on the financial side. But also for me, part of the motivation was find companies where I can learn from the managers, management team, or actually engage with them in some way, shape, or form so that I can actually learn about sort of this transformation from the perspective of these startups that are trying to disrupt or change the way things work. With that in mind, I tried to find companies that are in various sort of doing different things, not just one area of music. Music has many, many different verticals, whether it's music marketing or how do we use technology to better matchmake between songwriters and professionals. How do we use algorithms to create playlists? These are all experiments or explorations that are going on through these startups. So I've tried to select companies that are viable, but also reflect the various ways in which this sort of music transformation can happen. So that's how I started. I mean, I think my favorite interviews you've ever had are the ones where you've bleeped out their name. I think there was two of them where they were just absolute fails. Yeah, the two Patreon episodes, I think it was number two and then yeah. 17 that just came out recently. It was just like the oddest interaction ever. It was awkward and super, super entertaining. Yeah, well, good. Well, God, I got two entertaining Patreon ones there for you. <laughs> yeah. And real quick, because I think that's really smart the way you looked at it to try to get involved before like just starting your own company or anything like that. You're kind of investing in these other ones to figure out what they do. But before you jump in any further, how were you able to find those companies? Did you just send an email out to your old finance guys and say you're looking for music type companies to invest in? Not really. It was uh, you have to build a network. So, of course, you do that in various ways. I think my first portfolio company was an introduction from a longtime music industry veteran who is doing advisory work for startups now. I got to know through a friend. So it's contacts, personal contacts. I knew very little about the industry. I had very, obviously had no experience in the industry itself, very few contacts. So networking was a very, very important part of the first couple of years. And most of the initial companies I looked at came through that. The other dynamic within music technology, it's, it's a very, very niche area, and there are relatively few professional and semi-professional investors that invest so specifically just in that. So I think 
in a sort of ironic kind of way that made it easier to meet companies and meet people because there are very, very few people doing this. I guess sometimes my friends call me the craziest person in the room because there's no upside in music tech or it's the craziest place to invest. And, you know, we could talk about that some more if, uh, if you're interested. But for me, it was, uh, I think, going to conferences, meeting companies, finding the right people like these digital consultants that are out there helped a lot in terms of getting the word out that I was looking for investing. If I ever hear about a music technology company, guess who I'm sending them to, <laughs> you know, like if they need funding or something. Yep. And I continue to look, you know, I've, I've looked at over 500 businesses. Most of it is in line with my mission, if you will, of sort of the creator side, right? Tools and services that focus on the creator community and to some degree, the business side of music. I've seen a lot of companies and I end up saying no to a lot of them, obviously, because of a lot of reasons. Once in a while, you'll find a really, really cool idea. I also tend to look at companies that are a little bit further down the road than a typical independent investor would see. And that's also ironic because it's very difficult to get funding, like I said, in music technology in that sector. And as a result, you get to see companies that have been around longer in some practical financial way at lower valuations than you would see companies in perhaps in other sectors of the startup world. And that kind of helps think through as an independent investor what to invest in as well. That seems like it makes sense. Basically, did this about, I'm looking at just LinkedIn about seven and a half years ago. Do you want to just tell us that your journey, what you've learned so far, and then we can hit it up a little bit more about the blockchain music? Sure. I've thought of my sort of mission, if you will, as, as having three or four different sort of pieces to it. So learn about the industry through the lens of startups. We just talked about that. That's an anchor. And that has been extremely helpful, not only in terms of developing more relationships as a result of participating in these startups and their clients, but also watching what's been going on in terms of change. We are in the, call it the second or maybe even the third inning of a very interesting baseball game as it relates to what digital is doing to media. Music has, for lots of reasons, kind of been the front runner around sort of both the challenges and the solutions associated with this transformation because it's so ubiquitous. So it's been really interesting to watch almost the attitude change of the industry through the lens of these companies and my network. One angle is sort of keep a pulse on the ever-changing nature of the shift has been really, really useful. The other thing that was really important to me in the journey, and I've started to do some more work on it, is really work directly with the creators themselves, right? It was important for me to understand what they're going through. So with that in mind, you know, more recently, so in the last four or five years, I've been doing direct investing in artists. So it's very similar to startup investing in that you focus on you think of the artist as a company and you actually form a legal entity and you invest in that legal entity. In my case, I join the management team of the artist as an advisor. It's essentially kind of my investment looks like a management contract, which is you get paid a percentage of everything the artist does, net, but instead of providing day-to-day -day services as a manager, you provide capital. And that money is used to make the artist's orbit bigger or greater than where he was. So we think strategically about how to spend that money together. That's been tremendously informative and really, really fun to be associated with the artists. I've done two deals, probably looked at about 80 different projects and artists to date. And I'm currently working on turning that into a fund so that we can actually do more, hoping to launch that early next year. So we're excited about that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned? Because you said we've learned a lot of stuff, but in detail, say if I was stuff that you didn't know beforehand and that now that you know. 
Sure. I guess on the investing side, the big picture is, right, the music industry is actually a really, really small industry. It's about 60 billion globally in revenues annually. It's growing again for the first time in about a decade, but it's been flatlining at that number, even though there's lots of changes. You know, you got companies like Ford and IBM and even Google now that make more money as a company than, than the entire music industry. That, I think, although you can kind of grab the headlines and kind of think of it that way, when you start peeling back the onion from that lens and you go down, you start to see a lot of inefficiencies from a business model perspective. And that's what a lot of these startups are tackling is trying to create more efficiency. I would say that the big learning for me going through this is it's going to be a very, very slow process of change as opposed to a hyper fast one. I would say the music industry is not yet fully transformed itself into a data centric business. If you think about the fact that you have over 2 trillion digital spins going on in the world every year and growing, whether that's YouTube or SoundCloud or Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, et cetera. When you add it all up, there's probably 2 trillion plus plays happening in, across those services a year. The industry is not set up to manage to that kind of velocity of consumption. And a lot of the insight that I have is that that's going to take a while for everything to kind of get normalized to the new environment. And I think a lot of people who are in the startup community, just as a warning, actually underestimate how difficult it is to move and change, if you will, behavior in the business. So I think that's probably the big learning that I've had across looking at it both from an artist lens and also from a startup lens. And looking at these other startups, you said basically all of them have been music related or has been other industries that you've actually invested in or at least looked at? I exclusively invest in music technology or music startups. Yeah, it can apply to different industries. That's why I interview a lot of people in different industries. Well, what are the things that you've looked at in these startups that's kept you from investing? Is there a common theme why you invested in one versus why you don't invest in other ones? Yeah, I guess that's we can unpack that for hours. Um, but my general observation, well, I have my own investing criteria, right? And we talked a little bit about the fact that I get a chance to look at companies that are further down their life cycle than a typical angel investor or, or independent investor would see primarily because there is a lack of funding sources for many of these companies. I don't generally invest in startups that don't actually already have a business in place, meaning revenues and clients. And I've had the opportunity to look at sort of that part of the startup segment. That knocks out a ton. Music is an extremely, I want to call it a passion-driven business. And as we all know, it's really easy to create a startup now, right? So Yeah, and get millions of dollars, you know, like at least you're looking at actual cash flow, right? It's, I think that's that finance background. Too easy, too easy to start. You know, you just need a rich uncle somewhere to give you 50 grand and off you go. And because music is a passion and people look at music both from the, wow, look at all these old school, highly consolidated, big players. There's got to be space for new stuff. So there's sort of optimism and or skepticism around the existing law and order, if you will, around the industry. It's a passion thing. So everybody kind of jumps into it. What I tend to see, and I think this is more broadly true if you look at it from an investor's perspective, many of the companies are trying to address too small a problem. It's an app or a product, not fundamentally thinking about solving a problem or a large enough set of problems. The example I give there's actually a music organization called Music Biz. And this is a while ago now, it's five years ago, but they actually curated a list of all the digital services that an independent artist should use to manage 
all the aspects of, of their business. So whether that's marketing or distribution of music or how do you connect with fans, blah, blah, blah. They created sort of the, you should be using these services list. And that's a curated list. And that list is 80 companies long. Imagine you sitting in your, your musician or a remix DJ or whatever, and you're sitting with your laptop and someone tells you, hi, you need to use 80 different services to run your music business. We're not quite ready, right? That, that tells you something about that. So I, I think it's very, very important when I look at companies to sort of understand where they fit in to the sort of problem set that they're trying to solve. You get too young, too small a problem are typical reasons why the conversation can be very, very short. Say you're trying to just create an app. Who even downloads new apps anymore, right? So that's the thing. Yeah, you're looking too small and I can't believe people even create them anymore. Yesterday or actually last weekend was the first time I've downloaded a new app in a year and it was a weather app. It's because the weather channel app sucks. So I kept trying <laughs> to find a, I keep trying to find a good weather one. I found one that I talk about on the radio. So there you go. But yeah, if you're just looking at an app, it makes sense that it's too small of a problem. And the industry that I happen to be looking at because it's so concentrated and it's small, and by the way, the concentration also is on the artist side, right? You know, they say about 75% of all artist revenues are actually collected by the top 1% of grossing acts. So this is massive skew in terms of where the money is. So the other interesting macro backdrop for the music industry is that if you don't get at or near the top of the food chain with your services, it's very difficult to scale. And technology has one of its basically fundamental utilities, this notion of scaling well. Scaling with a bunch of hobbyist musicians that don't have any money, that's not a business. You might do it as a passion project. It might be an awesome thing to do to create a community of uh, amateur musicians, but it's not a business. You know what I mean? So I think that's the other angle that I try to take a look at is in this difficult industry to scale, can they create? Can the team and the company create value that's sustainable? And it's a tougher question to answer in music than in other technology verticals, in my opinion. At first, I think I get a hand around like your business and what you're doing after your finance. And then I'm like, you know, you take a step back, you're like, okay, I never even thought about making money in that industry, a tech play and some music. Yeah. Which I guess kind of brings us to where you're at today. So you're still independently investing in these startups every once in a while, but you said you wanted to talk about dot blockchain music. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So I've kind of identified sort of as part of my attempt to solve this riddle. I've identified, what's that? World hunger. World hunger. Uh, yeah. The, the riddle of making sure that creators get paid in the digital world. So it's not as exciting perhaps, or as relevant, but I still think, you know, the creative economy is uh, important to support somehow. There's three or four sort of foundational things about that. And one of to me, foundational things that need to exist or need to be modernized in order for the digital world to be friendly for creators. And one of them is a much more robust way to express and manage creative rights in the digital world. We can go down this rabbit hole for hours as well, but broadly, the music industry business practices around managing rights, whether it's acting as an agent, like a PRO, performing rights organization would, ASCAP, EMI, a label which would own or get transferred rights from their artists, these things were all built, the legal framework was built way back when. Largely, the business practices are focused around thinking about music and creative IP as a product, right? So you'd sell a CD or vinyl back in the day. Now that streaming is mainstream and is the primary source of revenues, you have a really difficult time tracking all this information. 
we've also created, thanks to technology, an amazing way to collaborate and a very inexpensive way to create music. And you also have the ability to do remixes. And so music is a little bit more, it isn't a product anymore. It's a little more organic. It's changing all the time. When you start overlaying that and say, who owns the rights to this particular piece of music? Apparently, Beyonce's Lemonade album, for example, had 140 songwriters. How do you track that when you've got 500 different digital consumption services globally and there's 2 trillion spins a year, like I said earlier, happening on demand? It's a real intractable problem. So me and four other co-founders created a company about 18 months ago. I'm primarily focused on this right now. I'm kind of put the investing stuff on the back burner. The company is called Dot Blockchain Media. And the fundamental thing we're doing is we're building a technology architecture and a solution set to allow the entire music industry and possibly expanding to other areas like video, books, VR, which will allow for a much more robust and sustainable mechanism to allow for rights to be conveyed, rights information to be shared publicly across multiple parties, because we think that's important. Ultimately, for creators to be able to express what they want done with their creative IP. We've been working on that for about 18 months. We have gotten a fair degree of traction. We announced our first early adopter clients earlier this year in February, and we're working with them to actually populate this database and communication architecture. Super excited. The early adopter clients represent, potentially represent over 60 million audio tracks and represent about a million and a half artists and uh, composers, which is a really, really good start. For example, Spotify has about 40 million tracks, so it gives you some sense of uh, the scale of what we're trying to do right now. Super exciting. My job is the chief business officer, so I'm working on business deals, partnership deals, raising funds for the company, doing a lot of uh, the sort of central business hub stuff. And we have a team of, like I said, four other co-founders and one other senior person, uh, along with coders, obviously, uh, working on the way. So are you going to save SoundCloud? <laughs> Great question. Look, I call them the global 50. There's about 50 organizations around the world, and SoundCloud would be one of them, that basically effectively cover, let's call it 60 to 70% of the music consumption food chain or supply chain. So labels, publishers, PROs, digital streaming services like SoundCloud, YouTube, I would put in there as well. Those folk all can, our intent is to have all of them ultimately use the sort of, think of it as a protocol as opposed to a service, the new protocol that we're building. So SoundCloud's a really, really interesting example specifically because they're one of the largest DMCA-based platforms, which basically it says, they're basically saying, everyone who's uploading music to our platform is telling us they own it. So you can't, you know, you can't blame us if they put infringing material. That gets these platforms in a lot of hot water with the rights owners. So SoundCloud and YouTube are the two big DMCA-based platforms out there in the world legal DMCA platform. They need this. What's difficult about music is there's a writer, at least one writer and at least one performer, sometimes they're the same person. There's six rights conveyed to them, never mind what they are for a second. And then there's about 50 agents that represent those rights and collect on their behalf. Okay. And imagine doing that in one country, that's one country, multiplied by 30 major music geographies around the world. And you can kind of get a feel for the, the sort of web nature of how rights get distributed. So if SoundCloud can't figure out who to pay. I mean, it seems so easy after you just explained it that way, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My mind's boggled. I'm like, shit, I didn't, couldn't think of it. Yeah, it should be easier. But the main problem is those six rights, who owns those? To answer that question, you probably have to go to about 50 different databases that are all private. None of them talk to each other. 
basically that's the problem we're trying to solve is create a communal truth engine that allows and conveys that information across multiple parties, which will then allow any of these platforms, including SoundCloud, Spotify, et cetera, to actually access ever-current information about who owns the rights, which will then allow them to pay. Both SoundCloud and Spotify and others actually have been hit with class action lawsuits along the way because they're not paying what they're supposed to be paying. Stuff like that would go away, the sort of legal rationale. But I think it actually helps ultimately if what we're doing takes hold, it will actually help accelerate and hopefully allow people to innovate more quickly and artists to collect more money, which is kind of, uh, that's part of the riddle. So whenever you go to, say, a dinner party with your wife's coworkers or whatnot, do you even get into explaining what you do? I feel like somehow for some people, it's just too big picture, like couldn't get their arms around it. Or I'm just trying to think if you explain this to everybody, how that usually works. Well, you're talking about what I do in general or? Oh, or yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I guess even the newest company, you know, I mean, I understand it, but I could see a lot of people being like, what the heck is this? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. That, well, I've always laughed at the way specialization in, in the workplace has happened. This is a pretty specialized thing, right? Right. So, so I, I generally, <laughs> I, I, I honestly, it's not because it's confusing or whatever, but I generally try not to talk about what I do. I generally just characterize myself as a music business entrepreneur. If we get into rights, usually use a simple analogy, like I just explained in terms of one writer, right, or the Lemonade album with 140 songwriters, how do we make sure they get paid? I try to leave it at that. It is very difficult. What I will tell you is, it's equally challenging even to describe this to industry participants who know a bit about this. Like I said earlier, there's a little bit of data. This sort of thinking about music as data has not really sort of fully embedded itself into the industry players. I think we're still transitioning from a product paradigm to an access paradigm or data paradigm. There's a, a bit of that. There is trying to explain the blockchain let alone how it gets used for music rights. It's kind of a little bit of a stretch for some people. They read the headlines like people are, you know, doing ICOs and uh, Bitcoin is at 3,000 or 4,000. And they're like, what is this thing? So, you know, explaining how the chain is valuable in managing rights is also, has been a challenge at times, even with industry players. And then even fundamentally, music rights. I actually think it's uh, overly convoluted personally my opinion is for the way we're conducting ourselves. We would never have created this legal rights, IP infrastructure and definition if we knew how music and media was being consumed today. There's almost like this retrograde kind of look to the way we actually even have these rights established. I think for a lot of people, when you start thinking about music rights, their head spins because you know, it's like, wow, six rights, two different groups of people, 50 different you know, agents that collect on their behalf this is crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> you know, it's not for everybody. And it's also legal rights. So it's kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, I understood. Well, no, I, luckily I've been able to talk to some guys who are similar to you're not in the industry, but where guy who started something called Lendroid, where you even call a network of self-regulating loan markets for digital assets. I've talked to a guy about that. And I've talked to another guy who was, he and his co-founder were actually both on, and they were just talking about blockchains with traveling and be able to integrate. So luckily I've, I remember that even the first guy I talked to, I'm like, what the hell is this? And then now I've talked to at least a couple people where I'm understanding the blockchain and hopefully the listeners are as well. Yep. It's definitely, you know, I'm kind of in the camp of some of the people that are in the press talking about the chain as being equally important, if not more important in terms of a, not a technology, but a conceptual innovation similar to what the internet is. So 
my, what was back in the 80s. This thing is ubiquitously useful. It fundamentally challenges things like centralized authority. It challenges our accounting systems. It challenges identity and management of identity. It's actually a really, really cool thing to study, if you will, and talk to experts about, which we've had a chance to obviously and work with in my case, luckily. I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this to kind of look under the hood. There's lots of places where you can get reading lists and so on about it. And it's worth, uh, it's worth keeping your eye on because it will be used in almost every industry, in my opinion, over time. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Is there one single book or something that may, maybe the easiest way for someone who's just maybe tuning into this episode and they never understood about blockchain? Is there one source that you recommend just the easiest way for them to figure it out? You know what? I can't recall it, but there is actually a blog post. It's something like blockchain explained in 3,500 words. So if you Google that, you'll be able to get it. And it's a very, very sort of a well-synthesized read of not just what it is, but also how it can be useful and also has links to other things. So I think that would be a good starting point for anyone who's interested in that. And when's the first time you heard about blockchain? Because like I said, over the last year, I don't know, maybe it just initially I when I started hearing from Bitcoin is when I kind of understood what blockchain was. But for that, I don't know if that was even a term or people understood the concepts. Yeah, I guess, you know, it, it's kind of uh, blown up, so to speak, in the last three years. So prior to that, I think it was primarily everyone thought of blockchain equal Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> so those who, who were interested in sort of cryptocurrency or was like looking at it just as a curious little thing would check out Bitcoin, right? But now you have Ethereum, you have the Hyperledger project, which is a, an open source blockchain project with multiple entities. Our company, .blockchain Music, is using uh, Intel's Sawtooth Lake Hyperledger blockchain. So very long word, but basically Intel's backing us in terms of our project. So there are many, many different chains out there, many, many different startups. It is, again, a way, a lot of it is fintech or, you know, finance driven in terms of what the headlines are, but there are all these other applications that are being worked on today in the startup community. So I think it's really in the last three years that people have said, hey, wait a minute, this technology can be applied to this and to that and this and that, and let's go try it, right? I think we're going through that first inning, let's go try it phase right now across multiple uses. So could you explain what your day-to-day -day is like in the company now? How many people work there? What are your goals as a company? Sure. So Dot Blockchain Media, we have, uh, like I said, five co-founders. We just hired a head of data. So there's six senior people and we have, let's see, on and off, but we have about eight programmers doing code. The primary business objective today is uh, to get industry adoption. So I'm spending a lot of time together with uh, our co-founders on business development and we've taken the tack that we really want to focus on large content owners. So it's the major labels, the large indie labels, it's the major publishers, it's the largest PROs around the world, back to that global 50, you know, the large streaming services, et cetera. And we are making some progress. We have, like I said earlier, five clients that have signed up that are publicly signed up. We're working with others currently as well. Most of the work we're doing right now, I would put in the... Um, it's almost like a beta phase for the company. We are populating the data with real data, with real players. We're testing how this communal truth engine actually works. We're building towards our first commercial release of a .bc audio release. Uh, hopefully in early October, we'll be releasing new music into the world where everyone can hear it and everyone will know what the underlying rights information is and be able to track the changes, et cetera, and pay the right people. So we're very excited about that. So. On the business development front, we've got kind of irons in the fire. 
and hoping to convert over the next 12 months or so. We have products that we're finally going to be able to, or product development releases that we'll finally be able to demonstrate to the broad public. We are doing this as an open source project, so there will be tools available to build on top of our data structure and our architecture. And we're hoping to bring in third parties to build applications on top of it. So that's kind of all supposedly, supposedly sounds wrong, but we anticipate having a, a lot of that stuff done by the end of this year. So it's a very, very exciting time. So honestly, my day-to-day -day is just crazy. It's client meetings, product development. Awesome podcast to be on. Yeah, once in a while I get a nice break like this, which is cool and totally cool. A lot of it is also, I call it evangelizing, but really explaining this to people in public forums. So our CEO, Benji Rogers, is uh, our primary sort of voice, is uh, involved in many of the media conference circuit, speaks to the press. Uh, we have ongoing public uh, webinars. Uh, we're doing another one in September. We have a Slack channel where people can ask questions, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah, and where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I say, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, my, the courses I bought, whatever. I say, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one -on -one with you. Yeah, so what have you thought of our group call so far? I like the group call so far. I like how insightful it is and it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it. One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first group call. And I heard that episode, I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly, it's genuine. And so that was helpful. Looking back, even, you know, I'm trying to think, if you were an entrepreneur, what's the most important thing that maybe they can take away from your stories? One of the things I get to do, back to my teaching, my desire to teach is uh, I, I do get a chance to speak to entrepreneurs. I make a point of trying to do, you know, whether it's in a university setting or in a professional conference setting, I try to do one talk a month somewhere to kind of share my perspectives. First with my investor hat on, looking at the music business from the roughly decade that I've been hanging around the ball. I really feel like there's a few things as an entrepreneur you should be and a risk taker that you should be thinking about. So one is, we touched on this earlier, really try to solve a big problem and really critique your own business to see if it's really just, just a little tiny thing or a big problem. Be part of solving a big problem, I guess is the right way to put it. Another typical thing that I think people miss is the context in which their business resides or their idea resides. So being a student of your space, many of the um, startups that I've had a chance to talk to, when I ask them, so who are your competitors? the answer kind of comes back, well, there aren't really anyone else doing this. 99%, maybe even more, 99.9% .9 chance that you're wrong on that one. <laughs> right. Right? And if you can't articulate why you're different from the other people that are in and around you, I think you haven't thought through your business enough. So I think that's really important to think through is really be a student of the space that you occupy. Everything takes twice as long and everything costs twice as much as you think. <laughs> 
Or even more. <laughs> yes, or even more, exactly. And I think understanding that building a great company from scratch, which is basically what a startup is, is a, or an entrepreneur tries to do, is actually a long game. It takes somewhere between 10 and 12 years for even the companies that make it through this crazy, I call it the valley of death, from a small company to a public company, it takes 10 to 12 years for an IPO to happen. So are you really in it for the long haul? Or are you really just trying to... Now, there's exceptions, right? There's companies that blow up in a year and all that kind of stuff, but they're truly the exceptions. Are you ready, prepared for the long ride ahead? In the music space, it's even probably even more of a longer ride. I think understanding that you need to have that passion and you need to have that persistence in your blood for you to be successful. Another thing is don't overpromise, don't underdeliver. Agreed, agreed, right? agreed. To me, right, it's a business at the end of the day that you're building. That means you have to deliver. I think ideas are too easy, like I said, to implement these days because of the startup cost, you know, starting up a startup is so, the cost is so low. But if you're really serious about doing something big and building a great company, deliver, deliver, deliver. Investors who believe in you will actually understand if you really tried to deliver, but you failed. That's the whole point of this, this startup stuff, is taking big bets with low odds call it dark horse betting. But delivery, there's a lot of people who actually think, oh, just take the money, we'll figure it out later. That's actually not true. Have a plan, have a strategy, execute on that strategy, come back to the people that are partnering with you and let them know how your strategy is doing. I believe that this is actually probably the weakest link in many of the companies I see. And then lastly, you know what? There's a really, really good chance that you're not Zuckerberg, um, <laughs> meaning, Great companies are built with great teams in place, not usually just one individual that can drive everything. There are exceptions, again, I'd say Steve Jobs would be a good example that people look at, maybe Bezos, who kind of have the sort of cult of personality and the vision to drive an agenda and, and all that and be a great leader. But broadly, I think it's a team sport, building a company. Having a team in place that you trust, make sure they're competent, they complement your skills, those are really, really important things because, again, you're building a business. It's not about you getting rich. You're trying to build a business. Build, really focus on building a big, great team. I think those are some of the lessons that I've had to convey back to the people I speak to, both from my experience of looking at startups, but also actually, you know, obviously sort of rolling up my sleeves, as I call it, and, and actually building a few companies recently. Yeah, no, well, those are great points. Like, there are a ton of them, and I appreciate that checklist at the end. That, that was awesome, so. No worries. If anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, you can go to my website, digitaldaruma.com. And my email address is kumazaki, one word, at digitaldaruma.com. More than happy to take any interest inquiries, happy to follow up if any people have more specific questions. And obviously through your podcast site as well, you can just tag me there. Oh, yeah, we'll put a links in every, all your contact info there. So that's it. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. No problem. You know what I'm in the mood for right now? That's right. More service-based interviews. If you're in the mood too, then check out these episodes where we talk about how to service your customer. Episode 197 with two maids and a mop. Not to be confused with two girls in a cup. Episode 89 with the author Incubator. That's a fan favorite. Or episode 140 with Barbecue Smokehouse. And... If we've already filled your passion bucket with plenty of episodes, well, why don't you join us on a group call and meet some of our guests? 
All you have to do is become a Patreon member. I lead the calls and you get to ask the questions. So join us. Go to millionaire-interviews.com and sign up right now. And if you have any questions about the membership, feel free to message me on Pornhub. My username is bizboy69. That's B-I-Z-B-O-I-69. And as long as you're a Patreon member, I promise to respond to all your messages instantly. So become a member today.